This is Audible. Listening Library presents Wish Tree by Catherine Applegate. Read for you by Nancy Lenari. Be different to trees. The talking oak to the ancients spoke, but any tree will talk to me. What truths I know, I garnered so. But those who want to talk and tell, and those who will not listeners be, will never hear a syllable from out the lips of any tree. Mary Carolyn Davies, 1924. Chapter 1 It's hard to talk to trees. We're not big on chit-chat. That's not to say we can't do amazing things, things you'll probably never do. Cradle downy owlets, steady flimsy tree forts, photosynthesize. But talk to people, not so much. And just try to get a tree to tell a good joke. Trees do talk to some folks, the ones we know we can trust. We talk to daredevil squirrels. We talk to hardworking worms. We talk to flashy butterflies and bashful moths. Birds? They're delightful. Frogs? Grumpy but good-hearted. Snakes? Terrible gossips. Trees? Never met a tree I didn't like. Well, okay. There's that sycamore down at the corner. Yakety yakety yak that one. So do we ever talk to people? Actually talk. That most people of people skills? Good question. Trees have a rather complicated relationship with people, after all. One minute you're hugging us, the next minute you're turning us into tables and tongue depressors. Perhaps you're wondering why the fact that trees talk wasn't covered in science class during those Mother Nature is Our Friend lessons. Don't blame your teachers. They probably don't know that trees can talk. Most people don't. Nonetheless, if you find yourself standing near a particularly friendly-looking tree on a particularly lucky-feeling day, it can't hurt to listen up. Trees can't tell jokes, but we can certainly tell stories. And if all you hear is the whisper of leaves, don't worry. Most trees are introverts at heart. Chapter 2 Name's Red, by the way. Maybe we've met. Oak tree near the elementary school. Big but not too. Sweet shade in the summer, fine color in the fall. I am proud to say that I'm a northern red oak, also known as Quercus rubra. Red oaks are one of the most common trees in North America. In my neighborhood alone, hundreds upon hundreds of us are weaving our roots into the soil, like knitters on a mission. I have ridged reddish-gray bark, leathery leaves with pointed lobes, stubborn searching roots, and, if I do say so myself, the best fall color on the street. Red doesn't begin to do me justice. Come October, I look like I'm ablaze. It's a miracle the fire department doesn't try to hose me down every autumn. You might be surprised to learn that all red oaks are named red. Likewise, all sugar maples are called sugar, all junipers are called juniper, and all boojum trees are called boojum. 
That's how it is in Tree World. We don't need names to tell one another apart. Imagine a classroom where every child is named Melvin. Imagine the poor teacher trying to take attendance each morning. It's a good thing trees don't go to school. Of course, there are exceptions to the name rule. Somewhere in Los Angeles, there's a palm tree who insists on being called Karma. But you know how Californians can be. Chapter 3 My friends call me Red, and you can too. But for a long time, people in the neighborhood have called me the Wish Tree. There's a reason for this, and it goes way back to when I wasn't much more than a tiny seed with higher aspirations. Long story. Every year, on the first day of May, people come from all over town to adorn me with scraps of paper, tags, bits of fabric, snippets of yarn, and the occasional gym sock. Each offering represents a dream, a desire, a longing. Whether draped, tossed, or tied with a bow, they're all hopes for something better. Wish trees have a long and honorable history, going back centuries. There are many in Ireland, where they are usually hawthorns or the occasional ash tree, but you can find wish trees all over the world. For the most part, people are kind when they visit me. They seem to understand that a tight knot might keep me from growing the way I need to grow. They are gentle with my new leaves, careful with my exposed roots. After people write their hope on a rag or piece of paper, they tie it onto one of my branches. Usually, they whisper the wish aloud. It's traditional to wish on the 1st of May, but people stop by throughout the year. My, oh my! The things I have heard. I wish for a flying skateboard. I wish for a world without war. I wish for a week without clouds. I wish for the world's biggest candy bar. I wish for an A on my geography test. I wish Ms. Gentarini weren't so grumpy in the morning. I wish my gerbil could talk. I wish my dad could get better. I wish I weren't hungry sometimes. I wish I weren't so lonely. I wish I knew what to wish for. So many wishes, grand and goofy, selfish and sweet. It's an honor, all the hopes bestowed upon my tired old limbs. Although by the end of May Day, I look like someone dumped a huge basket of trash on top of me. Chapter 4 As you've probably noticed, I'm more talkative than most trees. This is new for me. I'm still getting the hang of it. Nonetheless, I've always known how to keep a secret. You have to be discreet when you're a wish tree. People tell trees all kinds of things. They know we'll listen. It's not like we have a choice. Besides, the more you listen, the more you learn. Bongo says I'm a busybody, and I suppose she has a point. She's my best pal, a crow I've known since she was nothing but a pecking beak and a speckled egg. We disagree sometimes, but that is the way of all friends, no matter their species. I've seen many surprising friendships during my life. A pony and a toad, 
a red-tailed hawk and a white-footed mouse, a lilac bush, and a monarch butterfly. All of them had disagreements from time to time. I think Bongo is too pessimistic for such a young bird. Bongo thinks I'm too optimistic for such an old tree. It's true. I am an optimist. I prefer to take the long view on life. Old as I am, I've seen both good and bad. But I've seen far more good than bad. So Bongo and I agree to disagree. And that's fine. We're very different, after all. Bongo, for example, thinks the way we trees name ourselves is ridiculous. As is the custom with crows, Bongo chose her name after her first flight. It may not be her only name, however. Crows change names on a whim. Bongo's cousin Gizmo has had 17 names. Sometimes crows adopt human names. I've seen more Joe Crows than I've seen Sunny Days. Sometimes they name themselves after things that catch their fancy. Pop-Top, Jujubee, Dead Rat. They'll name themselves after aerobatic maneuvers, Death Spiral or Barrel Roll, or after colors, Aubergine or Beetle Black. Many crows opt for sounds they're fond of making. Crows are excellent mimics. I've met crows named Windchime, Eighteen-Wheeler, and grouchy cab driver, not to mention a few others that are not appropriate for polite company. Down the street lives an aspiring rock band comprised of four middle schoolers. They practice in a garage. Their instruments include an accordion, a bass guitar, a tuba, and bongo drums. The band has yet to perform outside of the garage. But bongo loves to sit on the roof and sway to their music. Chapter 5 Names aren't the only way we differ from crows. Some trees are male, some trees are female, and some, like me, are both. It's confusing, as is so often the case with nature. Call me she, call me he, anything will work. Over the years, I've learned that botanists, those lucky souls who study the lives of plants all day, call some trees such as hollies and willows, dioecious, which means they have separate male and female trees. Lots of other trees, like me, are called monoecious. That's just a fancy way of saying that on the same plant you'll find separate male and female flowers. It is also evidence that trees have far more interesting lives than you sometimes give us credit for. Chapter 6 one thing trees and crows have in common, in fact, one thing all the natural world has in common, is the rule that we're not supposed to talk to people. It's for our own protection. At least, that's the theory. I've often wondered if the endless silence is a good idea. There have been so many times I've wanted to speak up, to intervene, to help people. I've never said a word, though. That's just the way the world has always worked. Have there been slip-ups? Sure, mistakes have been made. Last year, I heard about a frog named Fly, who'd been napping in a mailbox. All frogs are named after bugs they enjoy eating. When the mailman opened the box, Fly leapt out with a frantic croak. 
the mailman fainted. He woke up to Fly, who was apologizing profusely, squatting on his forehead. Clearly a breach of the don't-talk-to-people rule. But as always seems to happen, the incident was soon forgotten. After all, the mailman was absolutely certain that frogs can't talk. Just hearing things, he no doubt told himself. Interestingly enough, he retired not long after the frog incident. In any case, when you consider the number of trees and frogs and otters and wrens and dragonflies and armadillos and everybody else in the natural world, you'd think people would have caught on to our little secret by now. What can I say? Nature is tricky, and people are... Well, sorry, but most of you aren't that observant. Perhaps you're wondering, if you're a curious or doubting sort, just exactly how trees communicate. You may find yourself inspecting a nearby ponderosa pine, perhaps, or an aspen or sweet gum, puzzling out the magic. People speak with the help of lungs, throats, voice boxes, tongues, and lips, thanks to an intricate symphony of sound and breath and movement. But there are plenty of other ways to convey information. An eyebrow cocked, a giggle stifled, a tear brushed aside. These, too, are ways you express yourself. For a tree, communication is just as complicated and miraculous as it is for humans. In a mysterious dance of sunlight and sugar, water and wind and soil, we build invisible bridges to connect with the world. Frogs have their own ways of connecting. Same for dogs. Same for newts and spiders, elephants and eagles. How exactly do we do it? That's for us to know and you to figure out. Nature also adores a good secret. Chapter 7 I'm not just a tree, by the way. I'm a home, a community. Folks nest on my branches, burrow between my roots, lay eggs on my leaves. And then there are my hollows. Tree hollows, holes in a trunk or branch, are not uncommon, especially in trees like me who've been around a while. Hollows can be small enough for tiny salt-and-pepper chickadees or a family of deer mice. Or they can be quite large, big enough for an open-minded bear. Of course, I'm a city tree. We don't get a lot of bears around here unless they're of the teddy variety. But I've hosted more than my share of raccoons, foxes, skunks, opossums, and mice. One year I was home to a lovely and exceedingly polite porcupine family. I've even sheltered a person. Long story. I have lots of those, stored up the way a squirrel hoards acorns. Hollows happen for many reasons. Woodpeckers, fallen branches, lightning, disease, burrowing insects. In my case, I have three hollows. Two medium-sized ones were made by woodpeckers. The largest one happened when I was quite young. I lost a large branch that was weakened by wet snow during a nor'easter. It was a big wound, slow to heal, and my spring leafing that year was paltry, my fall color pale, and frankly, embarrassing. 
but eventually the hole healed, widened with the help of insects. And now, about four feet off the ground, I have a deep oval hollow. Hollows offer protection from the elements, a secure spot to sleep and to stash your belongings. They're a safe place. Hollows are proof that something bad can become something good with enough time and care and hope. Being a home to others isn't always easy. Sometimes I feel like an apartment complex with too many residents, residents who don't always get along. Still, we make it work. There's a lot of give and take in nature. Woodpeckers hammer at my trunk, but they also eat annoying pests. Grass cools the earth, but it also bickers with me over water. Every spring brings new residents, old friends, and more chances for compromise. This spring in particular has seen quite the baby boom. Currently, I am home to owl nestlings, baby opossums, and tiny raccoons. I am also visited regularly by the skunk kits who live underneath the front porch of a nearby house. This is unprecedented. Never have I sheltered so many babies. It just doesn't happen. Animals like space. They like their own territory. Normally there would be arguing, perhaps even a stolen nest or a midnight battle. And certainly there have been some disagreements. But I've made it clear that eating your neighbors will not be allowed while I'm in charge. Me? I don't feel crowded at all having so much company. Making others feel safe is a fine way to spend your days. Chapter 8 I have one more community member, although visitor is probably a better way to describe Samar. In January, she moved with her parents into one of the houses I shade, a tiny blue house with a sagging porch and a tidy garden. She is perhaps ten years old or so, with wary eyes and a shy smile. Samar has the look of someone who has seen too much, someone who wants the world to quiet itself. Soon after moving in, Samar began sneaking into the yard once her parents had fallen asleep. Even on the coldest nights, she trudged outside in her red boots and green jacket. Her breath was a frosty veil. She would stare at the moon and at me, and sometimes at the little green house next door, where a boy who looks to be about her age lives. As it grew warmer, Samar would venture out in her pajamas and robe and sit beneath me on an old blanket, spattered with moonlight. Her silence was so complete, her gentleness so apparent, that the residents would crawl from their nests of thistledown and dandelion fluff to join her. They seemed to accept her as one of their own. Bongo especially loved Samar. She would flit to her shoulder and settle there. Sometimes she would say hello in a fine imitation of Samar's voice. Often Bongo gave Samar little gifts she'd found during her daily flights. A Monopoly token, the car. A gold hair ribbon. A cap from a root beer bottle. Bongo keeps a stash of odds and ends in one of my smaller hollows, which the opossums kindly tolerate. You never know who I might need to bribe, 
she likes to say. But her gifts to Samar weren't bribes. They were just Bongo's way of saying, I'm glad we're friends. If this were a fairy tale, I would tell you there was something magical about Samar, that she cast a spell on the animals, perhaps. Animals don't just leave their nests and burrows willingly. They are afraid of people with good reason. But this isn't a fairy tale, and there was no spell. Animals compete for resources just like humans. They eat one another. They fight for dominance. Nature is not always pretty or fair or kind. But sometimes surprises happen. And Samar, every spring night, reminded me there is beauty in stillness and grace in acceptance, and that you're never too old to be surprised. Chapter 9 I was pleased to see Samar's family join the neighborhood. It had been a long while since we'd had any newcomers, but I knew that with time they would put down roots, just like so many other families from so many other places. I know a thing or two about roots. One night not long ago, Samar came out to visit. It was two in the morning, late even for her. She had been crying. Her cheeks were damp. She leaned against me, and her tears were like hot rain. In her hand was a small piece of cloth, pink with little dots. Something was written on it. A wish. The first wish I'd seen in months. I wasn't surprised she knew about the wish tree tradition. I'm kind of a local celebrity. Samar reached up, gently pulled down my lowest branch, and tied the fabric in a loose knot. I wish, she whispered, for a friend. She glanced over at the greenhouse. Behind an upstairs curtain, a shadow moved. And with that, Samar vanished back into the little blue house. Chapter 10 When you stand still for over two centuries while the world whirls past, things happen. Mostly, by far and away, good things have been my lot in life. My leaves have cooled picnickers and proposers. Beneath my boughs, vows have been made, hearts mended. Nappers have napped, dreamers have dreamed. I've watched a sense attempted, listened to stories spun. And the laughter, always and forever, laughter. But sometimes things happen that aren't so good. When they occur, I've learned that there's not much you can do except stand tall and reach deep. I have, for example, been hacked at, carved into, used for target practice. I have been underwatered, overpruned, fertilized and fussed over, ignored and neglected. I have been struck by lightning, battered by sleet. I have been threatened with axes, chainsaws, diseases and insects. I have tolerated the sharp claws of squirrels and the nagging pokes of woodpeckers. I have been climbed by cats and marked by dogs. I have my aches and pains like everyone. Last year I had a mite infestation that drove me nuts. 
leaf blister, sooty mold, oak wilt, leaf scorch. Been there, done that. Still, trees are luckier than people in one way. Only one percent of a fully grown tree is actually alive at any one time. Most of me is made of wood cells that are no longer living. In many ways, that makes me tougher than you. So yes, I've seen a lot, and who knows, I may see much more. I could live to be three hundred, five hundred even. It happens. Red oaks lead long lives, longer than our daintier friends' black willows, persimmons, apples, and redbuds. And yet. A few days after Samar's tearful wish, something happened that made me wonder if I'd finally witnessed too much. Chapter Eleven. The morning was budding, and I was waiting for warmth. Down the street, a lanky boy was lingering near a stop sign. Head down, he was hunched over like a windblown weed. In his right hand was something shiny—a tool, maybe, or a pen. He was smiling just a bit, as if he'd told himself a joke—a joke only he, perhaps, understood. All day long, I see people lost in thought, talking to themselves, grinning, frowning. He was nothing out of the ordinary. I was in the midst of a conversation with Bongo, who had just pointed out to me that I was a year older. Two hundred and sixteen rings old, to be precise. Another sprout day, I said. I still feel like a sapling. You don't look a day over a hundred and fifty, Bongo replied. Best-looking tree on the block. I'm really. I paused for comic effect. Getting up there. Bongo, who was perched on my lowest branch, sighed. A crow sigh is unmistakable. Like a groan from a tiny, cranky old man. Tree humor, I explained, just in case Bongo had missed it. Although of course she hadn't. Bongo misses nothing, because you know I'm so tall. Really, Red? Bongo stretched, admiring her lustrous blue-black wings. That's the best you got for me this morning. Maybe you'd appreciate my joke more if you weren't so sensitive about your stature. I teased. Corvids don't give a flying tail feather about height," Bongo said. "Smarts, wiles, trickery, cunning—that's what counts in our neck of the woods. Corvids is a fancy name for birds like crows, ravens, jays, and magpies. Bongo says she's too classy for a label as common as crow. A soft wind tickled my branches. Spring, that old rascal. Was teasing us with the promise of warmer days. The truth is, I said, it doesn't matter what size you are, Bongo. We grow as we must grow, as our seeds decided long ago. Red, way too early in the morning for the wise old tree routine. Bongo gave me a gentle peck. Although you're right, it doesn't matter how tall you are. In a fluttery blur. She sailed to a telephone pole far above my leafy canopy. Not when you can fly, pal. At almost the same moment, Samar and the boy who lived in the greenhouse, Stephen, stepped onto their porches. Both had backpacks. Both looked eager to greet the day. Their eyes met. Stephen nodded, just a flicker, 
and Samar nodded back. Not a hello, exactly, just an acknowledgement. Stephen ran off toward the elementary school down the street, but Samar hesitated. Hello, she called softly. Right on cue, Bongo replied, Hello, as she did every morning, sounding just like Samar. Bongo can also do a passable tuba, an impressive chihuahua, and a fine police siren. Samar looked up at Bongo, grinned, and headed toward school. With that, Bongo let loose a hoarse and gleeful caw and set off to wait for children to arrive at school. She was a regular there. Everybody knew her. She enjoyed annoying the children, and they enjoyed letting her annoy them. Bongo especially liked to untie shoelaces. While the children were busy retying them, she would snatch treats from their lunch bags. Every now and then, she would even make a polite request. She could say, Chip, please, no way, and you rock, when it served her purposes. Watching Bongo soar, I considered, not for the first time, my rambling roots. What would it be like to fly, to burrow, to swim, to gallop? Delightful, no doubt. Sheer joy. And yet, I wouldn't trade a single rootlet for any of it. It is a great gift indeed to love who you are. Chapter 12 By this time, the lanky boy had walked past me, swiveled, and returned. Glancing over his shoulder, he stepped onto the brown lawn that blanketed my roots. The air changed, quivering the way it will when people are near, with chemicals, with pulsing heat, with humanness. And then it happened. He dug into my trunk with the object in his hand, fast, deliberate. Again, he checked his surroundings. An elderly woman crossing the street smiled at him and shook her head. She was probably thinking, how sweet, I'll bet he's carving a heart with initials in it. Oh, to be young and in love. People are under the impression that trees don't mind being carved into, especially if hearts are involved. For the record, we mind. I'd never seen the boy before. He was big, maybe a high schooler. It's hard to know with people. With a tree, I can sense to the month, sometimes to the day, its age. I couldn't tell what he was carving, of course, but I could tell from the determined way he moved that it was meant to hurt. Not me. Somehow I sensed it wasn't meant to hurt me. I was just his canvas. That said, it's not exactly a picnic, getting hacked into. Bark is my skin, my protection from the world. Any wound makes it harder to fight off disease and insects. I wanted to yell stop, to say something, anything. But of course, I didn't. It's not our way. Trees are meant to listen, to observe, to endure. He was done quickly. He stood back, admired his work, gave a little nod, and left. As he walked away, I saw the tool clutched in his fist. A little screwdriver with a yellow handle. 
thin as a twig, bright as a meadowlark. Chapter 13 Bongo was the first to see what had happened to me. She landed at the base of my trunk, head cocked. Dropping the potato chip in her beak, she cried, I leave you alone for a few minutes and look what happens. What on earth? It seems someone mistook me for a pumpkin, I said. When she didn't smile, I added, Because, you know, I was carved. For the millionth time, Red, explaining doesn't make things any funnier. Bongo flew to my lowest scaffold branch, one of my big primary limbs. She examined my injury. Does it hurt? Not the way an injury might hurt you. Trees are different that way. I gotta do something, Bongo said. There's nothing to be done. You've got a major boo-boo. I want to help. You're the wise old tree. Tell me what to do. Really, Bongo, time heals all wounds. Bongo hates when I philosophize. She rolled her eyes. At least I think she did. It's hard to tell with crows. Their eyes are like morning blackberries, dark and dewy. I just hope my bark isn't ruined, I said. That's my favorite side. It's not ruined, just decorated, like those tattoos people get. Bongo nudged me with her beak. Show me who did this. I'll get him. I'll squawk at his window in the middle of the night. I'll dive-bomb him and yank out some hair. She flapped her wings. No, better yet, I'll make a deposit on his head. I'll make a deposit on his head every day for a year. I didn't ask what kind of deposit. I was quite sure I knew. Bongo, dear, I said, that won't be necessary. Bongo shifted from foot to foot, something she did when she was working out a problem. You know, she said, it's almost time for wishing day. Maybe this is some kind of wish, just a poorly delivered one. Another wishing day, I repeated. It seemed like we'd just had one. Had a whole year already come and gone? Days have a way of slipping past like raindrops in a river. One more round, Bongo said, of greedy people bugging you with their needs. One more round of hopeful people wishing for better things, I corrected. Wishing day was always a bit hard on me, and on my residence. Usually the animals and birds stayed away that day to avoid curious hands and endless photographs. But it was just one day. I understood its history and my role in it. I knew people were full of longings. A mother tugging a toddler along the sidewalk froze in place when she saw my trunk. Mommy, what does that say? asked her little girl who was clutching a stuffed toy dog by its bedraggled tail. The mother didn't answer. Mommy? They crossed the lawn. The mother stepped close to me. It says, leave, she finally said. Like trees have leaves? Gently, the mother traced my cuts with her index finger. Maybe, she answered. Maybe like that. She looked over at the two houses near me. Shaking her head, 
she tightened her grip on the little girl's hand. Let's hope that's all it means. Chapter 14 Those houses. My houses. One painted blue, one painted green. One with a black door, one with a brown door. One with a yellow mailbox, one with a red mailbox. For well over a century, I'd stared at them, prim and proper. Same small size, same boxy shape, same pitched roofs and squat brick chimneys. Architectural siblings. Long before they were a glimmer in some builder's eye, I was here, right in the middle of things. If my roots stretched past the property line that separated them, well, that's never been my concern. Roots can be unruly. Mine explored the earth below both houses, pirouetted around their plumbing, anchored their foundations. I spread my shade fairly. I dropped my leaves evenly. I bombed their roofs with acorns in equal number. I did not play favorites. Over the years, many families had called those houses home. Babies and teenagers, grandparents and great-grandparents. They spoke Chinese and Spanish, Yoruba and English and French Creole. They ate tamales and pani puri, dim sum and fufu and grilled cheese sandwiches. Different languages, different food, different customs. That's our neighborhood. Wild and tangled and colorful, like the best kind of garden. A few months ago, a new family, Samar's family, rented the blue house. They were from a distant country. Their ways were unfamiliar. Their words held new music. Just another transplant in our messy garden, it seemed. Except that this time, something changed. The air was uneasy. The parents in the greenhouse refused to welcome the new family. There were polite nods between the adults at first, but then even those vanished. Other things happened. Someone threw raw eggs at the blue house. One afternoon, a car passed by, filled with angry men yelling angry things, things like, Muslims, get out! Sometimes Samar would walk home trailed by children taunting her. I love people dearly. And yet, 216 rings and I still haven't figured them out. Our neighborhood had welcomed many families from far away. What was different this time? The headscarf Samar's mother wore? Or was it something else? As all this unfolded, busybody that I am, I kept tabs, eavesdropped. Observed. I never interfered, though. Trees are impartial observers. We are the strong and silent type. Besides, what could I possibly do? I had limbs, but they could merely sway. I had a trunk, but it was rooted to the earth. I had a voice, but it could not be used. My resources were limited. So, too, as it turned out, was my patience. Chapter 15 When you're the neighborhood wish tree, people talk. It didn't take long for folks to learn about the ugly word carved into my trunk. 
People stopped to stare. They gathered in little groups. They grimaced and shook their heads and murmured. By lunchtime, the police had arrived. I am not, as it happens, a stranger to law enforcement. A pair of calico kittens reside across the street. They love climbing up my trunk to my uppermost branches. Unfortunately, they don't love climbing back down. In the last two months, Lewis and Clark have been rescued twice by the fire department and three times by the police. Sandy and Max, the same police officers who'd rescued the kittens just last week, climbed out of their patrol car to check me out. They frowned. They searched the lawn for clues. They talked to passers-by and took photos. Bongo, I whispered. I'm an official crime scene. She was not amused. The owner of the houses, and therefore technically of me, was the one who'd called the police. Francesca, tall and thin, with short, dove-gray hair, lived across the street. The blue and green houses had belonged to her family for generations. Francesca was also the owner of Lewis and Clark, my intrepid visitors. With a grim look on her face, Francesca strode across the street to talk to the police. Lewis and Clark squirmed in her arms. That tree, Francesca said to Sandy, who was taking notes on a little pad. It's been nothing but trouble for as long as I can remember. Francesca has never been the sentimental sort. She likes cats more than trees. To each her own, I happen to like trees more than cats. Oh, but people love the wish tree, said Sandy. She looked me up and down, although I imagine it's a lot of work for you. Every year, the day after wishing day, I swear I'm going to cut that thing down, Francesca said. It was true, but I knew Francesca didn't mean it. She and I went way back. The cleanup isn't the worst of it, Francesca continued. The things people wish for, the craziness. Last year, someone wrote, I wish for chocolate spaghetti, in permanent marker, on a pair of underwear. Tossed it way up high. Chocolate spaghetti, Sandy said. I could get behind that. Craziness, I tell you. Francesca stared at me. It's just a tree, after all. Just a tree. Just a tree seemed a tad unfair. But Francesca looked tired and angry, so I tried not to take it personally. Sandy closed her notebook. People believe what they want to believe about trees. She stared at the newly carved word. About people, too. What now? Francesca asked. Dunno, Sandy said. The tree belongs to you, not the new family, and you've been here forever. Francesca smiled sadly. Suppose it could be me they're hoping will leave. They watched Max place a circle of yellow crime scene tape near my trunk, using metal stakes. Don't think so, Francesca, Sandy said. Max joined them. He stroked the kittens who purred loudly. One problem in terms of prosecuting anyone, he said, is the history of this tree. It's almost May when people leave their wishes or whatever. Hard to say for sure this isn't part of the whole, you know, tradition thing. 
he shrugged. That's assuming we figure out who did this, mind you. People are supposed to make their wishes on a rag or piece of paper, not carve it into the trunk, Francesca said. That's why back in Ireland they called these raggy trees. Nowadays a lot of people just tie a tag around a branch and write their nutty wishes. She shrugged. In any case, leave is not a wish. It's a threat. It certainly is, Max agreed. Francesca nodded at the cracked and buckled walkways leading to both houses. Tell you one thing. Wish tree or not, this oak is destroying the walkways, messing with the plumbing, too. Roots go on forever. She shook her head. Maybe it really is time to cut it down. No more leaves to rake. No more wishing day mess. No more of this unkindness. Lewis leapt from Francesca's grasp and dashed for my trunk. Sandy tackled him just in time. We'll finish up our investigation in a day or two. Be out of your hair, Max said. Then you'll be free to do whatever you want with the tree. You know, Francesca said, taking Lewis from Sandy, my father almost cut this tree down years ago. My mother wasn't having it. Family lore or some such thing. Soft-hearted nonsense. She sighed. Guess it's up to me. Meantime, you keep us posted if anything else happens, Sandy advised. Francesca headed across the lawn, holding the kittens close. Leave, she murmured. What a world! What a world we live in! Chapter 16 When you're a tree, a phrase like, cut it down, is bound to get your attention. Francesca had hinted at such things before, but always in jest, after a long October afternoon raking my newly shed leaves into crisp hills or after a particularly messy wishing day, or after stepping on my acorns in bare feet. I felt bad about the walkways. It's an occupational hazard. To stay alive, I need a vast network of roots, and roots can be surprisingly strong. Did you hear that? Bongo asked, watching Francesca enter her house. She sounded serious this time. I've heard it all before, I said. Unfortunately, the newbies hurt her, too, Bongo said. Bongo calls every fresh crop of babies newbies. She pretends to be annoyed by their antics, but I know better. Listen, Bongo urged. Sure enough, I could hear the baby skunks wailing from their hidden nests under the porch. But we love Red Mama, one of them cried. Hush! Their mother, fresh-baked bread, scolded. It's the middle of the day. You're supposed to be asleep. You're crepuscular. Crepuscular creatures like fireflies, bats, and deer are especially active at dusk and dawn. Will Red be all right, Mama? Another baby, whose voice I recognized as Rose Petal, asked. All skunks name themselves after pleasant scents. I am not sure if this is because they're a bit defensive about their reputation or if they just have a sly sense of humor. Of course, said her mother, Red is indestructible. Bongo looked at me. 
See what I mean? Oh, dear, I said. By tonight they'll all have heard. The opossums, the raccoons, the owls. Little Harold will be beside himself. Harold was the smallest barn owl nestling and a great warrior. Barn owls give themselves sensible, no-fuss names. I'll talk to everyone, Bongo said. Calm them down. Tell them not to worry. I'm sure things will be fine, I said. I've seen a lot in my years. The things I've fretted about that have never come to pass, I could write a book. I paused. In fact, I could be a book. I paused again. Because, you know, paper is made of trees. Bongo gave a screechy crow laugh. She didn't even scold me for my lame joke. That's when I started to worry. Chapter 17 As much as I was concerned about the baby's reaction to Francesca's words, I was more worried about Samar. What would happen when she returned from school and saw the word carved into me? Would she think it was meant for her and for her family, as Francesca and the police seemed to assume? She came home alone. Ahead of her by a few yards was Stephen. A reporter from the neighborhood newspaper was waiting on the sidewalk, interviewing people as they walked by. Word travels fast in our parts, especially when there's yellow police tape involved. Had they seen what had happened, the reporter kept asking. Had they ever made wishes on wishing day? What did they think the word leave meant? The reporter approached Stephen. Did he know why someone would carve leave into the beloved local wish tree? Stephen stared at the reporter. Then he glanced behind at Samar, sending her the shadow of a sad smile. Without answering the reporter, he headed toward his house. Samar's eyes darted from Stephen to the reporter to me. She ran closer, saw the word, and gasped. She reached a hand toward me, but the police tape put me out of reach. Are you a resident? the reporter asked. Would you like to comment on the incident? Samar didn't say a word. She turned and walked up the sagging steps to the little blue house, her head held high, standing tall, reaching deep. Chapter 18 Around six that evening, Sandy and Max returned. When the police knocked on the door of the greenhouse, Stephen's parents opened it and answered questions. They shook their heads. They shrugged. Then they shut their door and closed the curtains. When the police knocked on the door of the blue house, Samar's parents opened it and answered questions. They rubbed their eyes. They sighed. Then they, too, shut their door and closed the curtains. As Sandy and Max headed back to their cruiser, Sandy paused beneath me. I wonder if we should make a wish, she said. Might be our last chance. I'll tell you what I wish for, Max said. I wish I didn't have to investigate things like this. Sandy patted his shoulder. I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. As for me, 
I spent the evening hours reassuring the parents and offspring who called me their home. They weren't just worried about where they would have to move, of course. They were worried about me. I was worried about me, too. I didn't want to leave the world I loved so much. I wanted to meet next spring's owl nestlings. I wanted to praise the new maple sapling across the street when it blushed red as sunset. I wanted my roots to journey farther, my branches to reach higher. But that is how it is when you love life. And I could accept that if my time had come, it had come. After a life as fine as mine, who was I to complain? I was worried about the babies, though, about their parents scrambling to find new, safe places to line their nests, dig their burrows, hide their winter stash of acorns. Most of all, I was worried about Samar. I don't know why. Perhaps it was because she reminded me so much of another little girl from another time long ago. A little girl I'd managed to shelter successfully. Francesca's great-grandmother. Like I said, we go way back. Chapter 19 Long after midnight, Samar came to visit me. She wore a blue robe. Her dark, curly hair was pulled back in a loose ponytail. Her eyes held moonlight in them. She sat at the base of my trunk on her blanket. She didn't look at the carved word, or the splinter of moon, or the blue and green houses. She just sat quietly and waited. It always took a while, but it always happened. One by one, the babies ventured out to see her. Harold was first, flapping awkwardly down to the ground. The raccoon babies, you, you, and you, were next. Raccoon mothers are notoriously forgetful, so they don't bother with traditional names. The opossums, the skunks, they all came. Samar sat perfectly still. The babies circled her. Together they sat in the shimmer of moonlight and listened to my leaves rustle. Bongo settled on Samar's shoulder. Hello, she said, in her crow version of Samar's voice. Hello, Samar said, echoing the echo. Bongo squawked, and Samar jumped a bit. Even Bongo's quietest caw is a bit on the harsh side. Bongo flew up to my smallest hollow and poked her head inside, her tail feathers still visible. With something shiny in her beak, she returned to the ground in front of Samar. Gently, she placed a tiny silver key attached to a long, faded red ribbon in Samar's open hand. It's beautiful, Samar whispered. Thank you. Bongo bent forward, wings spread, in a sort of bow. It was, in crow circles, a sign of great affection. I'd seen that key before. Bongo had inherited it from her mother. Crows live in extended families, and they pass information across generations. It didn't surprise me that Bongo still had the key, or that she'd decided to give it to Samar. In the sweet calm, 
surrounded by everything I loved. Moonlight, air, grass, animals, earth, people. I wondered, with a pang, how much longer I would be able to savor such moments. I wondered, too, if I'd done enough for the world I loved. It was something I'd asked myself before, but impending death has a way of focusing your attention. Sure, I'd provided plenty of shade, made oceans of oxygen for people to breathe, been a home to an endless parade of animals and insects. I'd done my job. A tree is, after all, just a tree. Like I'd told Bongo, we grow as we must grow, as our seeds decided long ago. And yet, 216 rings, 864 seasons, and still something was missing. My life had been so safe. Upstairs, a curtain in the greenhouse moved. Behind it, Stephen was just visible, watching us. I knew what he was thinking. One of the advantages of being a good listener is that you learn a great deal about how the world works. In Stephen's eyes, in the way he'd looked at Samar that afternoon, I saw something I'd seen many times before. A wish. Chapter 20 After Samar left, I felt restless. Restlessness is not a useful quality in a tree. We move in tiny bits, cell by cell, roots inching farther, buds nudged into the sunlight. Or we move because someone transplants us to a new location. When you're a red oak, there's no point in feeling fidgety. Trees, as I said, are meant to listen, to observe, to endure. And yet, just once... Before I said goodbye to the world, what would it be like to be something other than passive? To be an actor in the stories unfolding around me? Maybe even to make things a little bit better? Bongo, I said softly, are you awake? I am now, she grumbled. I have a question. I'll get back to you first thing in the morning. How does friendship happen? Bongo responded by snoring. I could tell it was a fake snore. Her real snores are so loud they scare the baby opossums. I'm serious, I said. Bongo groaned. I don't know, it just happens. But how does it happen? Friends have things in common, Bongo said. And there you go, your answer in five words. See you in the a.m., pal. I thought about her reply. But what do you and I really have in common when you get right down to it? With a loud exhale, Bongo flew to the ground. Okay, I'm thoroughly awake now. Thank you very much. What's this all about? Just an idea. Here's an idea for you. Ideas are a bad idea, said Bongo especially if someone is in busybody mode. I'm looking at you, Red. Back to my question. Why are we friends? Okay, fine. Let me think on it for a minute. Bongo walked in a slow circle around my trunk, 
considering. I love the way birds move, so unlike trees. We bend with the wind, 